Have you ever wondered how your sales performance compares against your competitors and peers? The B2B Sales Benchmark Report provides the definitive guide to what success looks like in 2021. See how you compare in terms of win rate, sales cycle, average deal value, relationships, and engagement. You can see the results and get the full report at ebster.com forward slash B2B dash sales dash benchmarks. Got to make it easy for the sales reps and the leader to even document that stuff. Um, facilitate those forecasting meetings, those pipeline calls where it all gets documented because that's usually when it gets passed out once a week. And then yes, we take all that data, communicate it back to our investors, to um, C-level and key factor, then get their feedback and adjust if needed. This is Sales Ops Demystified, the number one most downloaded podcast in sales operations. We invite the brightest minds in sales ops onto the show to deconstruct the what, why, and how behind rep productivity, forecasting, metrics, and all things revenue. This podcast is brought to you by EBSA, a revenue intelligence platform used to identify risk in the pipeline and score customer engagement and is sponsored by the Global Sales Operations Association and the UK Revenue Operations Network. Hello and welcome to another very special episode of the Sales Ops Demystified podcast. Today, we're joined by Ethan Trombley, who is currently the Revenue Operations Manager at Key Factor. As you can see, the Key Factor hat is on. Ethan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Tom. So I want to kick off first by understanding how you came into, well, first Sales Ops and then revenue operations. So I'd like to understand what you were doing before, why you moved in, and then also why you think a key factor we've gone for RevOps versus sales ops. Yeah, absolutely. So since it's so commonplace for people to get into sales ops in a very unique way, almost stumbling into it, I guess you could say that my entry point was like super traditional because I stumbled in as well. I was um, I was working for a 50-person software subscription company in Cleveland, and there just arose an eternal need for someone to manage their salespeople, manage their Salesforce instance, and also kind of middleman between different departments, whether it's sales and product, um, sales and C-level, sales and support, um, just some connective tissue that wasn't there previously. Um, so that was like... That was the first job I've ever done where I was that close to the ultimate goal of the company, which was to um, bring on more subscriptions and retain the existing ones. And once I was that close to it, I couldn't really envision doing any other type of job. Um, just being that close to the ultimate goal is invigorating. It's, it's super motivating every day. And once I heard about the opportunity at Key Factor, which was... Um, not as narrow as the other one, which is very uh, sales focused. The the revenue operations focus 
expanded from sales to marketing to channel sales, um, even connectivity um, with the product team and and sometimes with software development. And being able to um, just expand that up further and touch every single department within the company couldn't pass up an opportunity like that. And it's also now hard to envision like how we would do it not like revenue operations, not having it all under one umbrella. It's just so much easier to have it all in one place. Yeah, interesting. Um, just to give the audience a sense of perspective, roughly how many people are there in, in the rev, revenue team that you're supporting? So in marketing sales and success, and then how many people in, in your operations function supporting them? Yep. So... We have three people in the operations function doing support. And then we have about 30 across marketing, sales, channel, and customer success. Cool. And the three, are there three people in the ops team? Like, are they spread over all three? You don't have like a customer support ops specialist, marketing ops specialist? No. So we're still, um, we're covering a lot of territory, the three of us. Um, my boss, she's the chief transformation officer, and her main goal is improving the valuation of Key Factor, um, taking that value creation agenda that our investors want to see, that our CEO has been tasked with, and then operate operation. Sorry, tripping over my words, but turning that into a reality, right? Mm-hmm. And then we have myself, who's uh, very focused on revenue operations, working with the leaders on the revenue side, the channel leaders, sales leaders, marketing leaders. And then we also have someone else who's spending a lot of time on data and analytics. So we have a lot of decisions to make. That individual helps us. Um, it brings data to light to support all those decisions. Sure. And what is the current kind of rev slash sales of tech stack that you are running? So we're a big Salesforce house. We definitely try to maximize every last bit of Salesforce functionality there is. I think we're we're getting to the, the brink here. Mm. Don't want to do too much Apex. <laughs> but uh, we also have the service cloud in there. We use CPQ. For marketing automation, we use HubSpot. For sales engagement, we're using SalesLoft. We're doing some data enrichment with Discover.org, uh, RingLead. We're getting some intense data from Bombora. Doing some prospecting with SalesNav, like most SDR groups. And then we also implemented Drift this summer on the website. Nice. Now... In the last, say, three to six months, how have the team adapted to to going remote and what have been the challenges there? Yeah, honestly, it's kind of a boring answer, but we were already kind of there before all this happened. Um, My team, for example, we're already spread out across the country. So we were used to doing remote meetings. And then a lot of our salespeople are spread out across the country too because they're in territory um, field reps. Marketing team's a little bit like that. Channel team's a little bit like that. So it wasn't a huge adjustment. The technology was already in place internally to handle it. We'd already done away with physical phone lines and already moved over completely to Microsoft Teams and a little bit of Zoom. So the transition was... It was, it was really smooth. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've had a couple of guests now where the... It's normally with smaller businesses where you've already started to go this more remote like all, everything's in the cloud, you don't really need a desk. And so these types of businesses, it was just a almost seamless transition. Yeah, I just say we were, we were ready for it from day one. 
um, it was more just waiting for Microsoft and, and Zoom to catch up their uh, ability to handle bandwidth with what we were doing. <laughs> was, mm. I'm sure everybody was experiencing that the first few weeks where those systems were freezing up quite a bit, but they got it together. Yeah, I think it is basically the size, the bigger the business, the more impact this whole thing is having. But, but with relatively smaller businesses, it seems like it was just, it could be very smooth. Anyway, um, so when remote, very seamless. Have you made any tech operational or cultural changes uh, in response to going remote? Culturally, um, I feel like our company culture as a whole is, has taken it really well. And leadership's been super flexible. Like a perfect example is um, working parents. I'm not one, but we have many within the business. And there's just like an understanding amongst everybody, like an empathy that if it's during the summer and you have your kids home and you're also trying to work, if we need to reschedule meetings, if we need to do unique hours, if your deadlines need to be at this time, because during this time, you have to watch your kids. There's just been empathy across the board and that's been awesome. So I feel like we didn't lose any productivity because we knew that the nine to five hours, we accepted everything to get because those didn't like apply anymore and that the hours were going to be a little bit unique to accustom everyone's unique situation. So that's been great. Um, operationally, not too many changes. Um, like I mentioned before, like we were already doing most of our meetings over um, virtual conferencing anyways. And then tech, yeah, nothing changed there either. Honestly, sure. uh, we already had we already had the virtual conferencing already in place, so we didn't have to do anything different. And um, the only thing we added to our tech stack during that time was Drift, but that was unrelated to yeah. uh, pandemic. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of unrelated to sales ops, but I, I think the flexibility in the culture and and that amazing response from leadership is kind of something that organizations should have anyway, regardless of whether there's a global pandemic or not. Um, so do you think that when, let's say in six months, everything's like back to normal, do you think that kind of attitude and flexibility will retain or do you think it will go back to the way it was before, like maybe like a slightly less flexible? I think certain things will stick. Um, I think now that employees have seen that companies have the ability to do it, um, I think employees are going to up their standards and their expectations for companies. So I think the companies that don't keep some of these things, some of this flexibility are going to like lose good employees afterwards. So I, I definitely think there will be an impact for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Have the, uh, the targets or objectives of the, of the sales team changed? Uh, they've not. And if anything, there were some objectives that we considered um, upping because um, unique to cybersecurity, which um, keep back to we're selling cybersecurity software, we, they're, you know, it's not bad, but there's some positive um, effects. The pandemic of the huge shift to remote working for cybersecurity it creates a bunch of new vulnerabilities across a company's IT environment. And key factor is well-equipped to solve those problems. So we've actually seen demand go up quite a bit during this time. And so our demand generation targets like meeting set by SDRs and early stage pipeline creation, um, we've been seeing great success there as of late. And we're well ahead of our targets there. And bookings-wise, we haven't had to adjust either. Um, deals, you've cer you certainly see deals where 
people give you the, oh, budget's been cut because of IT and, and the pandemic and, you know, headcount reductions. You know, that you're going to see that. But for the most part, our deals are still progressing and the need didn't go away. Sure. How has that impacted your forecasting process? Have you had to, I guess, tweak the forecast upwards over the last few months? Our forecasting process, process actually remained exactly the same. We um, were big believers in using multiple forecasting methods to create a range of outcomes. Um, for an enterprise selling, it's awfully lumpy. It's, I don't even think it's a great use of time to be exact with your forecast or try to be. What we try to do is it's going to fall between this number and this number. Here's the worst case scenario. Here's the best case scenario. The different methods that we use are we have our reps assign probabilities. There's stage-weighted probabilities. And we also have our sales leader assign a probability as well. Then we do a little bit of stuff on the back end, um, looking at historical push rates for the quarter or historical win rates. And then that gets us a range of outcomes that we're comfortable with. Got it. Okay. So you're both having the reps submit theirs, but then also the leader submit theirs. And then is your role in that process the kind of collator? Uh, you're then collecting the data and then presenting that back to leadership. The role there is um, got to be able to make it, got to make it easy for the sales reps and the leader to even document that stuff, um, facilitate those forecasting meetings, those pipeline calls where it all gets documented because that's usually when it gets passed out once a week. And then, yes, we take all that data, communicate it back to our investors, to C-level um, and key factor, then get their feedback and adjust if needed. Sure. How, how do you think, if, if at all, you could improve that forecasting process? Or, or are you like fully confident in it? Never fully confident. Um, I think it, it's only going to be as good as the alignment that Ops has with the sales leader or sales leaders. We're, we're pretty lucky right now that we have one sales leader right now that we have really strong alignment with, right? But if we brought in another one and there was an onboarding period where we just weren't there yet, that'd be tough because then our data might not be as reliable. So I, I think just making that alignment strong over time is huge. And then also the way that that sales leader onboards their reps is huge too. Because we don't have any historical data on that new rep and we can't outrun a small data set or an inconsistent one for that matter. So the way that he onboards them and the way that he hammers in certain requirements of them, like keeping your probabilities up to date, being realistic with your close dates, being um, consistent with your stage movements is huge. So that relationship between us and, uh, and him is, is pivotal to all of it. Sure. Awesome. Now moving on to KPIs, which, which right now do you think is your most uh, insightful sales metric? Um, and the most got to pick one. I, the one I, I really like a lot is ARR per full-time employee. So to me, that's the best way to say, are we growing efficiently, right? Um, if we're getting this level of investment, um, our investors you know, eventually want to get return <laughs> that through some type of exit event. And they want us to grow as efficiently as possible so they don't have to give us more money to get to the same outcome. So I think that's a, a great thing to look at. Um, that's pretty high level. There's also a lot of more um, 
granular stuff that we're looking at to top funnel, like inbound lead to meeting set percentage, or how effective is our outbounding program with our SDRs for all the outbound touch patterns that we began, how many meetings do we set from that? What's the percentage? How has that changed pre and post pandemic? So we've been keeping a, a super close eye on those as well as meeting set to pipeline. Our sales directors and our SDR are still aligned and they're still seeing the same value from meeting all the way to pipeline. Oh, awesome. I, I love the, uh, almost the contrast because the, the first one Metro you mentioned, you're right. It's like a massive, a highly, uh, like high level strategic metric. And then you counter that with these like super granular ratios that you've been tracking over time. So I thought, I thought that was a really, really, really good answer. Was there any, I don't know if you can share this, but was there any like super interesting change in any of those uh, ratios through like pre during pandemic or that they all move the way you kind of expected them to move? There was definitely a couple of surprises. So um, like most companies, we started putting on a ton of webinars, virtual events, and we were generating a ton of leads. But I think the market got pretty flooded with webinars. So mm. we, we were seeing not as many meetings set from all these leads. We're like, oh, we've got all these leads. We're adjusting so well. But it wasn't generating the amount of meetings that we thought. It's like, oh, maybe we just need to um, double webinars a little bit. Focus. Yeah, and it triple the webinars. <laughs> <laughs> so that so that was a little bit of a surprise, but I think that was probably a learning exercise for everybody because everybody had a mix of webinars and physical events. So we didn't even really know to anticipate there. We thought it might match historical webinar to meeting set rates, but it didn't at first. But we've since adjusted, and now we've got that back to where we want it to be. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I can imagine the conversion from lead to meeting over the, well, from webinar lead to meeting over the pandemic would have definitely dropped because there was so much going on. Um, yeah. Amazing. Okay, cool. Then to, to wrap up the discussion, um, who within your career has taught you the most about sales operations? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's super recent, but my current boss, Ellen Kinley, she's chief transformation officer for Key Factor and she's been, doing some form of sales, marketing, or revenue operations, biz ops, whatever you want to call it for, I mean, gosh, you know, over the better half of a decade. And though I came to Key Factor with some, some experience, I'm in ops, but I, I was really teaching myself and just trying to, you know, read other companies' white papers to understand how this all worked. I didn't really get a formal education until she came on board and started teaching me everything that she knows. And it's, it's been the best experience of my life. Amazing. And then finally, who uh, within the world of sales or RevOps would you like to take for lunch? If someone that you could know or, or don't know? So uh, this answer is probably going to fall outside the, the criteria for the question. But I think this person, <laughs> if put into a sales or revenue, revenue ops role, would be a perfect fit. Because I just think, um, in my mind, the most admirable skill of an ops person is the ability to shrink a very complex problem with maybe a virtually endless amount of variables down to just the few variables that correlate most with whatever we're trying to optimize for, typically revenue, let's just call it that. And I, I think that person is... Um, his name's Paul DePodesta. Um, he's most commonly known from the book Moneyball. He's uh, currently... Uh, yes. the, yeah. yeah, so he, he's... Or people to think of him as uh, Jonah Hill within the yeah. actual movie. Yeah. He doesn't quite look like that, but he, he's currently the uh, chief strategy officer for the Cleveland Browns right now, my favorite football team. So that definitely helps. <laughs> so I could ask him a few questions about that, but also try to understand his mind and how he's able to 
shrink large problems down. So I could want to do it better myself. Yeah, I think I think that's probably the best answer we've had to that question. For sure. Like that I really like A, I really like that film. But B, you're totally right. Like all these an incredible amount of variables, but what are the three things that matter to have the biggest impact? And I guess player selection in a you know, baseball team is probably a good proxy for sales operations. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think there's some there's some connected tissue there. I hope <laughs> there's, we're there's definitely money balling over here. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> did you, did you like you, you could? Uh, we're kind of going off topic here, but you could kind of take the same approach to selecting salespeople. Have you have you delved into that, or is that just too far fetched? I think. Um, where we've mimicked it a little bit is with account prioritization. So everything we do is super account-based, but there's thousands of accounts to go after, right? If you're looking at all companies a thousand and up, you got 18,000 companies to figure out where the heck should the SDRs, the sales reps spend their time for any given eight hour day. And we use, we, there's a bunch of different data points you could use to determine that. There's intent data. There's just simple firmographic data. There's, um, HubSpot data. So are they engaging with our content? There's SDR call data. All these things are disposal, but we need to narrow it down to just a couple things to be able to tell the SDR where to spend their time. And that's um, that's something that we spend a lot of time on for the last 12 months is account prioritization. And I feel like that's maybe the, the closest proxy for the money yeah. balling. Yep, sure. Awesome. Well, Ethan, thank you so much for the, the insights. There's a few points that I like. I loved your response on the forecasting question and the, particularly the part about forming that bond with leadership and that having that is crucial in the forecasting process. And of course, I love the answer and the, the kind of ideal of applying Moneyball strategies to uh, the sales process. So Ethan, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you again, Tom. Really appreciate this. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sales Ops Demystified Podcast. If you are listening on a podcast listening application, then please subscribe, rate, and review. And if you have any questions about the show, if you know a guest, or if you have any questions about sales operations, just hit me up at tomhunt at ebster.com. That's tomhunt at ebster.com.